as we come now before the very word of God. If you'd like to read with me, we'll be in Matthew chapter 27. This is the gospel according to Matthew in chapter 27. But before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, uh, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And Jesus, you are that light. Help us now, not only to see by your light, but to see you as the light. Help us in this time to look to you in all that you do and all that you are, that we would have hope in you. Spirit, would you guide us to see these things and to believe? And this we pray in, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Matthew in chapter 27. We'll begin here in verse 57 and read to the end of the chapter. So Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead, and that last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. This is the word of God. Now, you wouldn't know it just from the text I just read, but today is the day we celebrate what we call Palm Sunday. Uh, this is the day in which a few days before he was crucified, Jesus makes the, the now famous triumphal entry ride into Jerusalem. He's on, on a donkey coming as this humble king, and, and the crowds uh, shout out to him, then not just the little kids, but everyone, Hosanna to the son of David, that is, save us and Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That happens, but not here in our scene. That's back in Matthew chapter 21. So Palm, Palm Sunday then kicks off what, what we now today call Holy Week, or at least some people call it that. And the church has given uh, special names to many of the days of this Holy Week to mark the various events. So uh, Thursday is called Maundy Thursday. That is, Maundy, after the, 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 the mandate 
that Jesus gave at the Last Supper to his disciples that they would love as he had loved. And then after Maundy Thursday, then we have what we call Good Friday. That's the day in which Jesus crucified and died as a sacrifice, as an atonement for sin. And the whole week then culminates in the big grand finale of Easter, Resurrection Sunday. That's when, of course, everyone knows Jesus has risen bodily from the tomb and he appears to many people. But all of this, there's there's a day that's often missing in there. It at least doesn't give very much face time. And that's Saturday. What's going on on the Saturday of Holy Week? You know, various traditions, if they give names to these things, sometimes call the Saturday the Great Sabbath, or my favorite one for it, Easter Even. The Easter Even is Saturday, or some, some folks call it Black Saturday or Holy Saturday. Whatever name we give to it, Matthew doesn't give it any particular title here. You can see what he calls it in verse 62. It's just the next day. <laughs> that is, after the day of preparation. But this day, this Saturday, is the only full day that Jesus spends in the grave on the day between the day of his death and the day of his resurrection. And there's only one other gospel writer that says anything about what occurs on this Saturday. It's Luke. You can see it, uh, what he says about the Saturday event at the very end of Luke chapter 23, if I can get there. Here's the last line. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. That's all Luke gives us about that day. Mark and John don't even mention Saturday at all. They just cut directly from Friday evening to Sunday morning. But Matthew here is the only one to give us a real window into the events of that day. And even though he does give us a window, it's still a small window here. You can see sort of what's happening on this. There's just a few people mentioned even on this day. We can see the chief priests and the Pharisees are gathered here. They, they had at this point successfully gotten Jesus condemned and killed on the cross, but they're not done with him yet because they are concerned that Jesus' body might be robbed by the disciples, who I guess are grave robbers according to them. They're concerned the disciples might might want to try to make it seem true that Jesus came back after three days, just as he said. And, And if people think that this Jesus is alive, they say, this last fraud is going to be even worse than the first fraud of them thinking he's the Messiah. And so the chief priests and Pharisees then appeal to help for for from Pilate. Now, Pilate here is not done with Jesus either, although I'm sure by this point he wished he were. You know, when he had pronounced Jesus' death sentence, when he finally said, take him away and crucify him, he washed his hands, remember, of the whole thing. But now, here he is, dragged back into the scene, and he he seems to be playing both sides just to try to get this whole mess out of his hair. So he's received an appeal from this guy named Joseph, not Jesus' dad, Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph of Arimathea is is part of the Jewish religious council, but he was also pro-Jesus. 
a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And so he's gone to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body, which Pilate then grants to him for burial. Pilate also receives an appeal from the Jewish council members who are anti-Jesus, very anti-Jesus, and they ask for this, uh, this guard of soldiers, which Pilate grants so that they can secure the tomb from this fraud that they think is going to happen. And so Pilate then is spending this Saturday tying up loose ends left over from Jesus. Now, it's interesting here, at least in this account of Saturday, there is no report at all of what any of the disciples are doing on that day. We assume it's the Sabbath day, a day of rest, that they were resting, whatever that looks like, although I assume that was also a sad and anxious day of rest. But all of this then leads us up to the big question that we're going to try to approach today, which is this. Where is Jesus on this day? Where is Jesus on Holy Saturday? I mean... We know exactly where his body is. We're told that again and again. He's in this new or previously unused tomb. He was prepared and and laid to rest there by Joseph, witnessed there by many women, and then triple-checked, I'm sure, by the soldiers, these opponents who have set the guard before they seal off the the tomb. I'm sure they, you know, peek in. Is is he still there? Good, because we have to make sure that he doesn't get taken out. And then they seal it off. We know his body is in the tomb. We also know that we are more than just our bodies. And that's true of Jesus, too. So spiritually... Where is Jesus? He must be somewhere. Where is he? The text, well, doesn't tell us. Not here, at least. Matthew is reporting what's happening on the ground. So he's not trying to peek above or below the ground. He's just reporting the events as they were seen. So there's silence from the gospel writers about this particular issue, but that silence has not kept people from trying to fill in the blanks with our imaginations. If we ask, where is Jesus on this Saturday between the day of his death and the day of his resurrection, some people would say, well, of course, Jesus went to go to heaven, right? As if, you know, Jesus is somewhere sitting up on his throne at the right hand of the Father, uh, sipping a, a margarita or a ginger ale or what have you, maybe checking his watch to go, you know, is it Sunday morning yet? I'm supposed to be out, out of the tomb at a particular time. I've got to make, make a big hubbub about that. That's what some people might say today. If we were to ask a first century Jew, however, where the dead go they would have answered very differently than that. If they were to answer in the Hebrew language, they would say, well, the dead are in Sheol. 
or if they were speaking in answering Greek, they would say, well, the dead are in Hades. And all of this, Sheol, Hades, the depths, the realm of the dead, those seem to be different ways to refer to essentially the same place. That is, in their concept of these things, there is one place of the dead where all the dead go. All. Christian or not, people of God or not. Which is why we hear in the Old Testament, we hear Jacob and David and Job and others, all of them speak of not just other people, but even themselves going down to the place of shale upon their death. Death then is spoken not as an ascent, but as a descent. Death is not up, that all, all go down. And this is much closer to the way that Jesus speaks of his own death. Jesus will rise, that is, he will come up at the resurrection on Sunday. He will also ascend. He ascends through the clouds at his ascension several weeks after the resurrection. But upon his death, he speaks of it as a descending. This is just not, not just other people's report on it. This is how Jesus himself speaks about such things. Uh, just a, a, a line here in Matthew chapter tw uh, 12, verse, let me find it, verse 40. Jesus says this, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. There's a descending here. This is similar, by the way, to the words that we hear in the Apostles' Creed. This happened to be our affirmation of faith that today, well, not happen to be. We do such things on purpose. But there's a line in there, controversial to some, line about Jesus descended into hell. And by hell, in the original you know, conception of this, they don't refer to a fiery place with that, although we do believe such a place like that is real. The original intent is to refer to the place of the dead, Hades, or by some other name. In other words, we could say what we mean by that line is that Jesus descended to the place of the grave. Now, this often brings up questions in people's minds. Some might say, wait a minute, preacher. Didn't Jesus say to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise? What do we do with that? And I would say, well, first of all, good job knowing your Bible. <laughs> it's true. It's one of the few words that Jesus does say on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. Not just you'll be with, in paradise eventually, you'll be in paradise today. And we assume that's where Jesus is on Saturday too. But we need to recognize that what Jesus calls paradise there on the cross is not palm trees and white sand. 
That paradise is not heaven in the way we conceptualize it, as in in the full and good presence of God the Father. Let me try to summarize it like this. The first century conception of death went this way. That there was a single place of the dead that goes by many names, depending on various languages and concepts, but single place of the dead, one place that is divided into two, at least, clearly distinct compartments, we could say. These two compartments of the one place, I like to call them Hades plus and Hades minus. Uh, If we were fitting with the Bible in closer terms according to the scripture, we would call them uh, paradise or Abraham's bosom. And Gehenna, or, or hell. And we're not told in the Bible exactly how those compartments are arranged spatially or where exactly they are in the cosmos, but we're, we are told that there are divisions in this single place where all the dead go. And Jesus is well aware of that conception of death in his day. In fact, he seems to affirm that very thing uh, with his use of some of the parables. One in particular, you know, parables are, are stories, you know, they're stories, but they are grounded in reality. And he tells one in Luke chapter 16. We don't have time to to read all of this. Uh, You can look at it on your own time, I suppose, but I just want to look at part of this that I think will help us. This is Luke chapter 16 in the middle of Jesus' parable. Verse uh, 22, Jesus says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, or bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame." Now, there's more to this that I can't get into, but let me make a few quick notes about what's happening here, real fast. One, we are able to see, recognize, communicate with other spirits in the place of the dead. And in a sense, there is one place of the dead, one large place where they are able to talk back and forth. In another sense, however, they are two clearly distinct places. There is a place clearly of torment and curse, and another place of contentment and blessing. The division of those two places are not divided according to the good people and the bad people. You know, one of the only ones mentioned here is Abraham is in the positive place, and we know he's not there because Abraham was a good guy. Abraham was, let's say, complex morally, but he's there because he believed the Lord, we're told in Genesis. He believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is a division, then, not based upon good deeds and bad deeds, but a division based on faith in God, those who would surrender to God in his mercy. 
We also know that this description has nothing to do with limbo or purgatory. There's nothing being purged out of believers here. Those ideas aren't found in the Bible at all. But even though there is one place with two divisions or two compartments, there's no crossover between the two. If we had time to read later, we would see that there's a great chasm even somehow fixed between them that is uncrossable. In fact, they wouldn't cross that chasm even if they could. Not even the rich guy to get out, because the condition of crossing is faith and surrender to God, which he continues to reject forever. Life is now even setting this on us on these eternal trajectories, which is why we need to heed these words now on this side of death. At any rate, that brings us back to the original question, where is Jesus on Saturday? The answer then is this. In the days between his cross and the resurrection, his resurrection from the dead, Jesus descended into the realm of all the dead, where all the dead would be able to see and hear him, even across the chasm. But more specifically, he descends to the compartment of paradise there where Jesus is with all the people of God who had died in faith before. Jesus then does not spend that Saturday in hell, at least in terms of fire and torment and curse of sin. Jesus already experienced the reality of hell on the cross when he was forsaken by his Father. And as agonizing as that was, it had an end. At the end of his cross, he said, it's finished. That is the punishment for sin, the guilt of sin, the the wrath of God that was poured upon him is finished. It no longer remains. There is no hellfire for him anymore. Jesus on Saturday then descended to paradise below. Now, that leaves us with the final question of why? Why did Jesus go there? I mean, on one level, on the face of it, uh, Jesus had become man, true man. And so when Jesus dies, he goes to the place where all the dead at the time go. But it's much more than just that. I want to be clear about this as much as I can. The people of God experienced rest, true rest in some sense, in in paradise below. They don't touch even one degree of the flames of agony because Jesus has stood in their place. And yet, we should also not assume that paradise, as we see it here, is complete perfection. Paradise at this point is still part 
of shale, still part of Hades, still part of the realm of the dead. And in this sense, the whole realm of death is spoken in Scripture as a sort of prison. There's a controversial passage in, in 1 Peter chapter 3. We won't read it, but Jesus speaks about being put to death and proclaiming to the spirits in prison. There's a lot of discussion historically about that, hotly debated. We won't unpack all of that, but it's not the only text that speaks in those sorts of terms about the death at, a death at large. There are texts that speak about death this way, that death has a hold on us. Death is cords that entangle us. Death is a snare. It has dominion over us. It, it cuts us off from the land of the living, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You can hear the way it's spoken of by the author of Hebrews in chapter 2. And just a couple of verses here, if I can find it. Hebrews chapter 2, verse uh, 14. Listen. Therefore, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus' work, not only in becoming flesh, but specifically in his death, is spoken in terms of conquest in deliverance from the slavery that is death. So why did Jesus descend to paradise below? It's not because he's having this relaxing Saturday where he's kicking back on his, long, on his lawn chair after a long day on the cross, now just waiting for the sunrise on Sunday. Jesus is breaking free the captives. He is reclaiming all those who are his. He is shattering the very chains on the door in the death of death. That's what's happening here. Which is why we see at the end of things in the book of Revelation, Jesus announces himself as the living one who holds the keys of death and Hades. And he got those keys not because he knocked on the outside door of death and boop, 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 politely asked to have them. Jesus marched into the very realm of death and took the keys from the inside. So that by the very end of Revelation, at the very end of it, this whole realm of all that has remained after his conquest of it, all that's remained of death in Hades, all of it gets thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus conquered the realm of the dead during his three days under death. That's why Christians in the medieval period called this the harrowing of hell. 
It's like the ring of that, although I had to look up what harrowing means. The raid, the plunder of hell. Jesus doesn't come in as a pirate, you know. Pirates take things that don't belong to them. Jesus comes in as a king to take back what is already his, to remove paradise from under the thumb of death. So if I, I suppose if we were looking for a, a fun name for, for, for Saturday, like Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, I think a good name for that day might be Ransack Saturday. It's not just that Jesus leaves death in shambles. It's that he's bringing these prisoners home by way of his resurrection. Which means everyone who is in Christ now, who dies, is not just in paradise below. All those who die now are with Jesus in the very presence of God. Which is why we're told in, in 1 Peter that Jesus died for sin, being put to death in the body to bring you to God. That's a source of immense hope, relief for all of us who are in Jesus. Let me say one last thing. Before we close, I want to sneak in one last observation to give us a little bit of perspective. All of these cosmic level things, kingdom stuff, Jesus's harrowing of hell, of hell on Ransack Saturday, all of this is happening behind the curtain so to speak. We see none of this recorded in the events of the Gospels. What we're given instead of what we see, what little window we see on Saturday is a handful of chief priests who assemble a handful of soldiers to stand guard outside a tiny tomb to try to get their way and stop the mission of Jesus. You see how silly that seems? If only they had eyes to see what was happening. You know, what, what trifles the enemy brings when our God is doing so much more. Let that encourage you to trust Jesus, even in the moments when you cannot see beyond the veil. Pray with me. Our Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, you are the one who abolished death and you have brought us life to light through the gospel that you have ransomed your people from the power of Sheol and redeemed us from death. 
Lord, help us to hold on to this, to hold on to you in hope and in trust that we would worship and honor your name forever. We know that your way is good, and we do trust you for all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.